This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you're having a, a great Thanksgiving. And uh, you may be driving home from uh, your Thanksgiving dinner with your family, or maybe you're heading there. If you're heading there, this show is going to be uh, of use to you, maybe. If you're leaving, you can look back and say, did I use these techniques? We're going to be interviewing John Smirak on how you can have a peaceful Thanksgiving. Now, I want to warn you ahead of time. It might not work. This might be the worst advice you ever get. It might be the best advice you ever get. I am not in a position to judge. So email me at Jason at the Great Campaign. Jason at the Great Campaign. Email me and say, Jason, I use this advice and I have never been invited. I've been disinvited from every family gathering ever again. Or say, Jason, it worked. It worked. John Zmirak's advice was wonderful. Now, I would say, John Zmirak, we're going to be asking him how to keep the peace at the Thanksgiving dinner with the leftist wackadoo family members. And, uh, Probably not the best. John's maybe maybe not be the best. He may not be the best guy to ask those questions to. Uh, so you, we'll, we'll see. You be the judge. All right, this episode is being brought to you uh, by MyPillow.com. Go to MyPillow.com on Black Friday and use the code Jones, and you will get the best Christmas presents ever with a money-back guarantee to March 1st, 2023. And I'm telling you right now, it's the lowest prices in history over there at MyPillow.com. And the best, the best, the best Christmas presents ever. The best. That, that was my Donald Trump, all right? MyPillow.com. Uh, also, this episode is being brought to you by Epoch Times. Go to iReadEpoch.com. Use the code Jason Jones. MyPillow.com Jones. iReadEpoch.com Jason Jones. You get a year subscription to the best, Steve Bannon says, the best daily one sheet in America over there at my at, uh, at uh, Epoch Times. I read epoch.com. Use the code Jason Jones. Also, guys, next week, Giving Tuesday is on Tuesday. We have a $20,000 matching grant at thegreatcampaign.org, $20,000. Yet, we need to raise $300,000 by December 31st to meet all of our current responsibilities for our work in Afghanistan our work supporting uh, vulnerable Christian communities in Africa. And we're going to be telling you more about that maybe in the, in the coming weeks, what we've been doing there. We haven't been sharing too much about that. Our guy Ryan uh, is now in, in Ukraine removing landmines so farmers can farm. We're doing a lot. I dumped our reserve fund into the general fund. So now our organization has been month to month. The crisis has not gone away. The election sucked all the money out of the room. And so we have been swimming hard. Uh, to make ends meet, and I have had a knife to my neck, and I will be doing nothing, but I'm speaking. I'm going to Washington, D.C. for several meetings in December, important meetings. I'll be going to the Middle East in, in January, but um, I'm going to be spending most of my time fundraising, which I don't like to do. No one likes to do that, obviously, right? We like to do the works of service, but um, go to thegreatcampaign.org, and if you've never donated to us, please give your best one-time gift Today, if you've been our donor and you and you and you have it in your mind that you're going to give an end of the year gift, please do it 
sooner rather than later. We're launching our Coal for Christmas campaign to make sure that the Christians in Afghanistan that are in hiding have their coal and their food, that those Afghan, the widows and orphans of our Afghan soldiers that died fighting for the United States are going to be taken care of. Last year, we believe we distributed more food and coal for heat than any organization in the world. We're seeking to double our efforts this year. Um, But we literally are hand-to-mouth as an organization because the past year and a half has been crushing. There is no more reserve fund. Thegreatcampaign.org. Give your best one-time gift and stand with us as we stand with the most vulnerable people in the world. Uh, Now... For your favorite guest and my dear friend, John Zmirak, on possibly the best advice you have ever received on how to keep the peace at Thanksgiving, or maybe the worst, I don't know, John Zmirak, on the Jason Jones Show. John Smirak, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thanks, Jason. Great to talk to you. So I thought, who would be the best person to teach America how to keep the peace this Thanksgiving? And uh, and he wasn't available, so I thought, who would be the worst person <laughs> for me to talk to to teach us how to keep the peace this thing? And it was you, John. John, I thought you might be the worst guy. Well, you know what, Jason, that's not fair. I have, <laughs> I have, I have a history of sitting down at a table with people with very different opinions. Say, it, say the the Gothic dorm at Yale or a cafe in Greenwich Village. And by the time I'm done, they go from a lively exchange of views to an icy Antarctic silence. <laughs> well, that's what, kind of my point, John. I think I was being. Oh, really- that's peace. I make a desert <laughs> and I call it peace. All right, that's true. That's that's true. Okay, so so you're going to teach us how to bring an icy cool to, right. to a heated uh, Thanksgiving. All right, so that's right. Yeah, well, and so it, in my column, I have a column on this topic at Stream.org called "Keeping Peace at a Holiday Dinner: Some Conversational Gambits to Placate Your Doomed Woke Kin." Uh, this is good. Uh, so all the so we're not trying to. Who- so we're not trying to actually pull them out of the cave. Oh no, that's hopeless. <laughs> we're not. So we're not to trying get... to lead them to the light. We're not. No. No, you're just trying to get through the next two hours without indigestion, without clawing each other's eyes out. Well, so we have I mean, to go in are... with. We have to go in with realistic expectations. Realistic expectations. These people are reprobates. They've exhausted whatever God, whatever grace God allotted them the course of their existence they've already used it up okay they are now pretty much you know the opposite of the elect uh or you know if that's not true if god wants to save them he he can he will but the, but the thing is we won't We're, we've done our best we've done our worst it is futile at this point nothing we say is going to change these people it's more a matter of deterrence look if you were running around trying to transform the eternal destinies of people in your family who are doggedly opposed to everything you stand for, you're pretty much a neocon. You're, you're like going to the Middle East and trying to turn it into Switzerland. 
And the outcome's probably going to be just about as positive. You're an interventionist. I I have become an isolationist <laughs> right. in these matters, or, I, or at least a real a, a realist, a big R realist like Mearsheimer. All right. So before you so, give us your advice, Jen, I want to set the stage yeah. there because um, yeah. you know I'm one of these people that needs help. Mm-hmm. These folks wait all year to pounce on us, to yeah. lure us into a fight. You know, we're just coming to eat and say grace and you know watch football, but they. Because I know, I always, I'm not good at, my wife's like, don't talk politics, and I never want to, right. but they just right. wait, and then they pounce yeah. on us. So is this going to work? I mean, when they're waiting to pounce on us, are these tactics going to work? Well, I mean, these are based in solid experience, and, and, <laughs> and also, you know, clinical psychology and the art of war. Okay, here and, we go. And spiritual, and spiritual warfare. I've drawn on all those fields of endeavor. Okay, so, I'm excited. You know, I, yeah. Well, first of all, I, I, I tell us an anecdote of something that happened in, I think, the early, late 90s, early 2000s, back at something they called the Fabiani Society. It was a monthly free cocktail party held for conservatives funded by Pfizer. Believe it or not, Pfizer used to be kind of sympathetic to the political right. And it uh, it used to fund this monthly cocktail party where there would be a speaker, and we few conservatives in New York City would actually get to meet each other. You know, would actually get to put on t- suits and ties and things. So I was there, and I ended up trapped between a and I'm not going to give their names, but uh, a prominent neoconservative writer who was in the midst of his, a religious search. And a columnist who was a, a, a Yale alum from the same conservative organization I was in. He was from a few years earlier than me. But he was a really loudly gay libertarian who had gotten himself a same-sex marriage at the first opportunity. And he liked to make a point of like rubbing his gayness in my face and making nasty remarks about Christians in the Catholic Church. Not that I ever said anything to him, but he knew I was a conservative Catholic and he wanted to find ways to sort of rub a grapefruit in my face. So at this cocktail party, you got the neocon and you got the gay libertarian. And I somehow end up, I think they were close to the bar, uh, talking to them. I mean, this is a and, metaphor uh, for our, our lives, I think, most of us. I'm, yeah. I'm usually sandwiched <laughs> between a libertarian and a, and a neocon. A gay libertarian and a warmongering neocon, yeah. I'm usually so, between a rapidly heterosexual libertarian and a closeted <laughs> gay neocon. But Okay, well, see, this, 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 is, this is kind of spicy. So the, the, the libertarian, the neocon is going, I, you know, I've, I've, I'm on a religious search. I've, I've flirted with becoming a, a Baptist, and I've, I've flirted with becoming a Catholic, but... I, I haven't made any decisions, and, and at this point, the libertarian says, well, sweetie, you just make sure it stays a, a flirtation. You don't go all the way with any of those nasty old religions. <laughs> you know, it's also witty and funny. I guess I'm supposed to be wounded here. I'm supposed to, like, go in a corner and cry. Instead, I turn to the neocon guy, and God, I think God put this in my head. I had not prepared this in, in advance, but I say, actually... I think you should have anonymous encounters with hundreds of strange religions in public restrooms. 
Okay, yeah. So these are these are the tactics you're giving us. And that you know, it stopped the confrontation. It completely diffused it. The two of them basically ran for opposite corners of the room as if I had pulled out the pin on a grenade. Mission accomplished. I dropped my mic and moved on. Um, so you know, I have experience with this kind of thing. Okay, that's, so, that's my point. See, but here's the problem, John. Like, if I were to use that tactic, which, by the way, I want to set it up. I, we all experience that where they they take pot shots at us. Then when we retaliate, we're the bullies, and it's probably fine unless you're married. And then in the car ride home, your wife's like, "Do you do you have to do that all the time?" And I'm like, "But I didn't start. I never started." But yeah, but you. Yeah, I but don't you start only. wars. I just finish them. Right. See, my wife gets mad Next at me. Time I'm gonna my wife gets say, mad at look, me for finishing wars. She gets mad at me for even being in them. Like, I'm like, babe, they waited all year to pounce on me. They pounced on me. They, I was ignoring them till they blasphemed. Then I responded, and now you're mad at me. See, this is what happens every year with me. Yeah. Well, all I can say is it's 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 about deterrence. It's about mutually assured destruction. You need to teach them the lesson that Hiroshima taught the Soviets. Uh, the fact that we bombed Hiroshima for all the atrocities that it constituted, it certainly kept the Russians in line for the next 70, 60 years. Yeah, they're still, <laughs> they're they're really- still thinking about it. And, and by the way, for those of you who want to write me nasty emails, John and I have written aggressively against this. So, but do we, do we, you tell us and you talk about in your article that we can, we need to learn how to accommodate their values. Right. Well, there is, I, there is, and here I have some approaches. Okay. Well, Let's say some member of your family who you only see once a year for excellent reasons, he's a self-righteous vegan. Not, he's not a vegan for health reasons or just an animal lover. He's a vegan with a, with a point, with a purpose. He believes that animals have the same basic rights as people and that every animal on earth has rights except for the one that lives for nine months in the womb before it goes to the magic birth canal and turns into a human being. That creature has no status, and it's always open season on that. So you know the kind of person I mean. Um, yeah, I don't even think they're vegans because they love animals. It's it's like St. Francis de Sal says in the introduction to The Devout Life. We all pick our pieties based on our own inclinations. They probably don't like meat. Then they say, okay, this is a way for me to beat other people over the head and convince myself I'm more virtuous than everyone. Yeah, yeah, and they also might be kind of anti-human, you know. They they prefer nature, and they think man, mankind is a threat to human, to, uh, threat to other animals, and they they don't think we have the right to pick up eggs that chickens leave behind, you know. They they wouldn't eat, eat those eggs. So let's say you got somebody like that. Now he's coming to dinner at your house for Thanksgiving or Christmas. You have to feed him, right? You can't just not feed this person. Feeding the hungry. It's one of the corporal works of mercy. Um, and it's your duty as a host. But you know, if you provide him some fancy vegan alternative meal, some four little four course vegan vegan feast, he's gonna take that as encouragement. He, that's gonna make him feel kinda amped up. Like, well you see, just look at how wonderful food can be vegan food can be without exploiting animals and without putting them through factory farms, he's going to find a way to compare factory farms to Nazi concentration camps. You know it's going to happen after at least if he has a few drinks. And really, who wants to go there when you're just trying to eat some turkey and potatoes and, you know, cheese? Uh, so, so 
how do you feed this guy without encouraging him to preach, without him thinking, maybe I can make some converts here. I'll make everyone taste this delicious, this delicious uh, tofurku casserole. No, no. What you need to do is feed him adequately, but not in a way that encourages him. You know, that encourages him, that, that seems to enable his worldview. So what I suggest, you think of this guy, you don't think of him as like an obnoxious, self-righteous person. Think of him as a three-year-old, a cute three-year-old who's a really picky eater. What would you do with that, with such a person at your dinner table? Uh, grilled cheese Wait. and hash browns. Well, well, you can't do can't do grilled cheese. He's a vegan, right? Carrot sticks He's, and celery. Okay, sticks. so here that's right. Well, I suggest you could hold with plant some plant based patties like tofu or seitan or I can't believe it's not food. I'm not sure the brand <laughs> be uh, Impossible Burgers. Impossible that's Burgers. Right, and what you do is you get. A cookie, one of those dinosaur-shaped cookie cutters that you can get on the internet. <laughs> you cook up the patties and you cut them into cute, fun little dinosaur shapes. Then you serve them on like huge leaves of, of raw kale, make it organic, and have some dipping sauces in little cups made out of butter lettuce. Present all this to your self-righteous vegan relative. I guarantee you, as he's eating these little T-Rexes or brontosaurs made out of fried vegan patties, he's not going to feel empowered. He's not going to feel like he can hijack the conversation and lecture everybody about ethics. He's probably just going to lapse into a solemn, reflective silence, and that's probably the best you can hope for at this point. Yeah, and you can give him applesauce in a juice box. There you go. There you go, yeah. See, here's the thing. If you have a relative like that and you have a big turkey carcass in the middle of the table, I don't buy I don't believe it. Right? Like you and I aren't going to a planned parenthood for Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's right. And they're like, hey, we're yeah, hey, come on over. Uh, we're going to be I'm going to be serving Thanksgiving dinner in the operating room at the local planned parenthood. Yeah, I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm not going there. So if they're like, Yeah, it, all, Marina you know, Brahm- turkey- Marina Bramovich. And um, who, who's that guy? That guy was in the White White House. Went to the Spirit uh, oh. Frank Podesta. You don't encourage Q. Don't encourage Q. I, <laughs> okay, but don't we want them? Here's the thing, John. And I think you addressed this. We want them to feel heard, right? Like I want I want the liberals to think we're listening to them, right? We want to we want to do we want them to feel heard that they're you know yeah yeah that's them? my next the next okay, tactic that okay. I offer the next tactic I offer. Well, you know, this doesn't have to do with food. Let's say you've got a sister-in-law who moved to California and converted to the local state religion of Gaia worship. Now she thinks that human beings are a plague on the planet, and it's our duty to cull the human population by 80% to save the planet. And she sees other members of your family who maybe have two or three kids, and she, and she looks at them as if they pooped on the table. Hold on a second. Same doing a podcast. Welcome to the world Sorry, of podcasts. Jason. No, I love it. Yeah. Uh, go, go on. All yeah. right. Um, so, you know, she looks at every – people have several kids like they pooped on the table. And, and she starts kind of unfolding her – the views she has soaked in from the mainstream media, which, of course, are insane, right? And she's talking about climate change, and she's talking about gun violence. And she's talking about Christian nationalism and election deniers. And she's, she's saying things which normally would provoke you 
to get angry and to argue. Well, I recommend instead of doing that, and I've been down that road, um, you follow Carl Rogers' technique. Carl Rogers was a psychologist who specialized in dealing with people with intractable delusions. And instead of like confronting them, what evidence do you have that Swiss garden gnomes are part of the global Masonic conspiracy? Uh, no, he would actually do this kind of listening tactic. Um, they called it, I think, active listening, where you, you listen, you hear what the person is saying, you, you pause, you process it, you think about it. Then you repeat the person's statement back to them, rephrasing it a little bit to make sure that you have right what they're trying to say. I hear you saying that Christian nationalists should be forcibly sterilized by the government. Is that what you're saying? See, and you check it out with the person. But I have one additional step that I add to the Rogeria technique. You make what they're saying even crazier. And you present it to them as what they said. So, for instance, I hear you saying that Christian nationalists and election deniers should be sterilized by the government and that they should have their current children taken away from them because they're unfit parents. Is that right? 100% of the time, the person you're talking to will, will say, yeah, that's what I meant. They will, they will agree to the even crazier stuff that you have added to what they said. And you just keep this process up till the conversation exhausts itself. That person will leave the dinner feeling good, feeling like they've been heard, they've been thoroughly listened to. Meanwhile, everyone else at the table who heard them agree to crazier and crazier and crazier stuff We'll know never to take them seriously again. So I call that synergy. That's a win-win. That's a good plan. I suggest you try that. Does everybody, like I have these people in my family. I have a relative. I shouldn't say his name, but he went to University of Wisconsin, attended a Jewish fraternity. Then he he named himself, I'm going to change it slightly, Planet Earth. His name is Planet Earth. We (laughs) We don't see each other, but... I, I miss him. I would like to see him, but he doesn't want to see me. But he named, he changed his name to Planet Earth. Do we all have these people? <laughs> yeah, I want. I do. say to my siblings, like, are, is our family the only crazy family? Like, I have a relative. We went to Rome. We would go to Italian restaurants. They would bring in like Wonder Bread because they didn't like the bread in Italy. <laughs> For real, oh, this is wonderful. a true story. Do we do are these? Do these people exist in every? My family? mother. My- my mother would be dragged to a Chinese restaurant. She would insist on ordering an omelet because that was the only thing that didn't seem disgusting there. And then when she when she tasted the omelet that had been made with peanut oil, she would send it back. You can get omelets at Chinese restaurants? You can if you're a stubborn enough Irish woman. I'm going to teach you. I shouldn't say this. This could get me in trouble with the triads. This is, this is <laughs> true. What I'm about to tell you is true. All Chinese restaurants, you know, not Panda Express, like real legit Chinese restaurants, will have a secret soup, a secret soup, usually secret dish, and it could include shark fin, dolphin, I don't know, and it's amazing, but they only serve it to Chinese people, and so mm-hmm. I've been to rest my wife's Chinese, I've been to restaurants with my family, my mother-in-law takes us. She orders the secret soup. I go to the same restaurant the next day, and I'll be like, can I have the secret shark fin soup? No secret soup. You mean day soup? Yeah, uh, soup of the day? No, the secret soup, you know, huh? 
Huh? The secret soup. No, no secret soup here. But Jason, I've been to I've been to restaurants in Chinatown in New York where they won't wait on you if you're white. You have to find an Asian in the restaurant to order for you, and then they will serve at the table if you've gotten one Chinese person to do I, the order. I bet that's food. where the food is great. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, well, we're telling Chinese stories. When I came back from D.C. in 2002, I was dating my wife, and I was having a hard time finding a job. Actually, my third job, because you need like three jobs in Hawaii. I had two. I needed a third and I went into a Chinese restaurant, and it said "Help Wanted" in the window. And then when I walked in and asked for an application, they said, "We're not hiring." They, <laughs> I, they, they I said, "You have a Help Wanted sign." We're not hiring. I said, "Would you like me to take the Help Wanted sign from the window?" No, leave it there. <laughs> By the way, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I wasn't offended. Who wants to see a big, ugly white guy when you're trying just to order? You know, Szechuan. Chicken and shrimp toast. You don't want to look at it me. It would make me think that the food was lousy and inauthentic. I mean, I, 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 I do judge Mexican restaurants by how many actual Mexicans you can see in the restaurant. Same thing with Chinese restaurants. Right. So. Now, you tell me there's restaurants that discriminate. I'm like, that's got to be where the food is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they don't know you. They don't serve white people there. Like if you heard there was a Kung Fu school that didn't teach white guys, you'd be like, that's the Kung Fu school I want to go to. Right. Conversely, if it were all white guys taught by white guys, I'd be pretty sure that I could kick their butts right now. We get monkeypox. You would, I promise you, you'd get monkeypox the first day there. <laughs> I love the word monkeypox. It just makes me happy. <laughs> it does. I was, in, I got a smile. I sent I wanna... a picture to today is the uh, 28th anniversary of me fighting in Japan at the world tournament. And, uh, I sent a picture to a friend of mine who's a very well-known, famous martial artist. I sent it to him and another buddy of mine, and they responded like, was this a Korean boy band or something? I said, yeah, we were called the Monkey Pox Boys. It's just monkey. <laughs> you add monkey pox to anything, and it's funny. Yes, I think it would be good for a children's, for a children's story. Maybe a children's hero. Monkey Pox the Destroyer. <laughs> anyway, so there's one more. Right, one John. more uh, little holiday thing. What if somebody in your family, they don't just have toxic, ignorant, ridiculous ideas. They have actually dangerous ones. By dangerous, I mean they're in the, into the occult or something. Like, let's say your niece comes back from college and she's got a shaman and she channels spirits. Or she wants to invoke the pagan goddess Pacamama as part of the blessing. <laughs> Or she whips out a Ouija board and says, come on, let, why don't we summon grandma? Aren't you curious about the afterlife? Now, this is, this is not just bad ideas. This is not just something you can argue with. This is the kind of thing that only responds to prayer and fasting. Um, how do you handle that at a Thanksgiving dinner? Well, you, you, ha you have to take a firm stand. You can't just do the Rogerian shtick with somebody like this. But you can still be gracious and witty about it. So, so what I suggest is, like, let's say you're, it's your niece and she's taken out the Ouija board after dinner. What you do is you take out your bottle, of, plastic bottle of holy water, which, of course, you should have known, known to bring if this person is going to be present. And you go up and you say, oh, 
Jackie, you're such an original, maybe pinch their cheek. And only then should you throw holy water on them and start to recite the, the prayers of exorcism that you've brought along on your phone or in your pocket. And just go through, just do a short exorcism prayer. Maybe put your, lay hands on her and rebuke Satan in the name of St. Michael and all the angels and the Virgin Mary. And then thank, give her a little knock on the shoulder and go get her dessert. Try to keep the atmosphere friendly because once the guests have gone, then you can do the full long form of the exorcism prayer and throw holy water and maybe bless salt all around the house and plant some St. Benedict's miles around. Okay, John, you're scaring me with this because this has happened to me. I have, I grew up an atheist raised by, my grandpa was a Scientologist, my mom was nothing, but the Ouija board was forever present, and I would be throwing Ouija boards out. How is an atheist kid I knew? My sister just recently brought this up to me. You know, you always throw and break the Ouija board and throw fits and tantrums when someone would bring out a Ouija board. But this was the thing that that would happen in my family. The, you wow. know, the Ouija board would often be broken out. Then me, I would break it. I mean, I'm six years old, yeah. nine years old, 12 years old. And I would throw a fit. Once I went through puberty, I was a tyrant around the house. No one crossed me. But they would always bust out this Ouija board. And uh, so it seems like I would think that that freakish experience would have only happened in my family. But the fact that John Zmirak is saying this is an advice in an article published at the stream means that God forbid in other families, there's fruit loops breaking out Ouija boards at Thanksgiving dinner. Well, remember Parker brothers sold it the same. I think it's the same company. I think it's Parker brothers. The people who made monopoly. It was, it was, it was sold yeah. as a mainstream board game to millions of people. I wonder if that had something to do with the paganization of America, is that millions of people were throwing the gates of their unconscious and their souls open to whatever random spirits are out there. I, I, if I had to explain it to people, I would say using the Ouija board, it's, it's kind of like licking the doorknobs at, on the bath, in the bathroom at the bus station. You're just inviting in all sorts of alien organisms, and you have no idea what they are, and you're throwing open the gates. You're welcoming them in. No, it always creeped me. I remember once my unit, when I was in the Army, we were, we were the rapid reaction force, and we were put on alert. Something was going on somewhere in the world. We were put on alert. What that means is they take, back in the day, they would take the payphones off the walls. They would put concertina wire around your barracks. You'd pack up your gear, you would empty the armory, you would load the planes, and you'd be waiting for the order. So the planes are loaded, the, the payphones are off the walls, the wire's up on the barracks, and these knuckleheads, and I'm an atheist, are playing with the Ouija board. I'm like, guys, do you think messing around with demons is something you want to do moments before, if there's a God, you may, you know, you know, days before, if there's a God, you might just meet him. And I was an atheist, but I'm like, I'm not playing with that and i'm definitely not playing with that when i might be meeting my creator if he's out there in the next couple of days because if there's a creator i have a sense in my being that this would be repugnant to him yeah, yeah. well you know someone else yeah i mean the power of this somebody pointed out that the whole COVID nightmare un broke on the world like two days after they enshrined the Pacamama idol on an altar at the Vatican. So well, maybe that's a coincidence, or maybe it's divine wrath. 
Wow. I, I kind of don't want to have to think that through too hard. I'm going to share that with my buddy Taylor Marshall. So two days after they enshrined Pacamama. On an altar. I mean, look at the timeline. That's when COVID emerged. Now, maybe it would have happened anyway, or maybe it would have been more mild, but I don't know. I mean, God seems to like to occasionally hit us hit us with a two-by-four across the forehead. It's ironic that um, that uh, Alexander Shugel, that brave guy who threw the Pacamama into the Tiber, I called it the Tibering of the Idol, uh, he got COVID really badly, but he survived. And he recovered. Can you believe they he went and dredged up? Uh, they 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 searched for with divers and rescued this Pacamama idol. So bizarre. Especially since the Pacamama idol is something that sells for four dollars at the Bolivian airport as a chachka. Yeah, actually, they should have just done. It. Maybe the diver took one down. He's just like tucked <laughs> in his shirt. Just like I want to be the hero. He like went to the bottom, took out his like iPhone, was texting with his wife. Making smiley faces, like pulling the you know, Pacamama out of his rubber bag. God is a lot kind. God is a lot kinder than I am because if I were God, when the divers tried to save the idol from the Tiber, I would have sent piranhas to tear them apart <laughs> to the last bottle. That's what that's what my God, the Mirac God, would do. So be be happy that you don't have a Croatian God. So let me ask you this question, John. I have to imagine. There was a time not that long ago in this country where one could go to a Thanksgiving dinner, hold hands with one's relatives, say a prayer, eat, laugh. Everyone's clean and neat. No one smells. And you could have lively and lovely conversation. There would be a toast. And grandma and grandpa would sit there and smile. And then the ladies would all be in the kitchen. Grandpa would be sleeping on the couch. The boys would be playing uh, football in, in the cul-de-sac. I mean, that was not that that was not that long ago, right? Where we didn't have to go to Thanksgiving dinner, being prepared for an ambush by utter lunatics telling you that their pronouns are they and them. Well, Jason, I got to say, you know, my my family's half Irish. We've never had peaceful holidays, and it hasn't been political. It's just you know, we're just impossible people. Um, I think maybe in past decades, uh, instead of people having adopted transgenderism and climate fa climate fanaticism and uh, branch covidianism, probably people had read the late great planet Earth and embraced end of the world millenarianism. Or I mean, there were there were these cra craziness and madness have always been with us. Remember, Mormonism emerged in America, right? Uh, Christian science emerged in America. We seem to be an incubator for wild crackpot ideas. So, yeah, I think probably in the past people were more homogenous, but I, I'm sure there were plenty, there were plenty of fights and difficulties. I, are I, things uh... worse now than they ever were? Possibly. Well, it comes from every direction. I mean, I never knew that time, right, in my crazy family. But uh, I have to just – maybe I just watched too many movies. I just have to imagine there was a time. I mean, because, like, the, this Thanksgiving, um, those of you listening, God forbid some of you are those people, um, even though I rail against Q all the time. I mean, you got to deal with it from the right, with integralists and the QAnon kooks. Usually they're the same people. 
often. The QAnon people are just too optimistic from my from my point of view. <laughs> I, I agree with them that they're probably global networks of pedophile pedophile Satanists. Oh, of course. But I can't believe what I can't believe is that there was anyone in the Trump administration with secret knowledge of it who was actually trying to help us. And that there was really a plan all along and everything's gonna be hunky dory. See the the problem with the QAnon people is their goofball optimism. Right. And, and their calumny, right? Thinking. And their calumny. So wishful thinking. I my problem is the wishful thinking that doesn't cut like They'll say, don't you believe that's what they always say when I, I rail against Q. I mean, you can't, you, are you telling me there aren't globalist pedophiles? Yeah, of course there are globalist pedophiles. But like you said, John, uh, there's no we plan. We call them cardinals. We call them <laughs> oh, cardinals. No. Hey, oh, oh. hey, we're trying to get cardinals out of prison right now. But but there I are. I don't mean Chinese cardinals. Cardinal I mean Belgian cardinals Former, and yeah, yeah. Washington cardinals. So, yeah, so there's no plan. We're the plan. Get to work, buttercup. You know, get to work. There's yeah. no, there's no super secret, uh, well, rapture force out there that's going to save you. <laughs> there's no plan to trust unless you made the plan and you were read into the plan. I can tell you. And when I'm like, oh, I, I talked to you know, Bannon laughs at this nonsense. Oh, you don't know. He's just he doesn't trust you. Yes, that's right. He doesn't trust me. So, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm the obnoxious person. You know, when the liberal, def- I'm obnoxious. Can you to the- tell me? Didn't you tell me you met, you talked to the person he, who claimed to have invented QAnon and it was, a, it was as a joke and it got out of control? No, I talked to somebody who claimed to know the person that started it as a joke. I don't know if I can okay. trust him. But then there's someone else that I know, again, um, and no one, anyone listening would know, so don't try to think, who is he talking about? Uh, I had another friend um, claims to know who founded it. I don't believe them. I really do think that this is a is this. I do believe it's Russia. If you were to, if I were to guess, and it's it's the best couple million bucks they ever spent, and it's probably in retaliation for a meddling in Ukraine in 2014. With like, you want to play games with elections? Watch. Let's have fun. But who knows? But regardless, it's gnostic. It's an anonymous messages from an unverifiable verifiable source that says things that you can't refute. Um. And then says really horrible things about real human beings that exist that you can't verify or refute. And that's calumny. That's Gnosticism. It is to be rejected because it causes division in a political community. Um, we wrote our book, The Race to Save Our Century, to give people five core principles that they could advance in their political community to create a more humane society. You know, when I approached, approached you to write The Race to Save Our Century, John, it was because I wanted to to protect people from Gnosticism and from utopian uh, wishful thinking. I said to a buddy of mine yesterday, if, if I found out there was a utopia somewhere because there was a new, there's a new Catholic community being created that were being promised as a utopia, I said, look, if there's a utopia somewhere, I'm not moving there for one no. very good reason. Why would Jason Jones or John Zmirak not, if there was a real utopia somewhere in the world, why would John Merrick, Jason Jones, why wouldn't we move there? Because it would be insufferable. Well, I we would ruin it. I would ruin it. If you had a legitimate <laughs> utopia and then the Jones family moved to town, we would bring scandal and would de- we would destroy the society. So all Because these- we're real people because we're real yeah. people and utopias are not designed for real people. They're designed for robots. Right. Yeah, but even if they had invincible grace, like the Blessed Virgin Mary, it was a community of, 
you know, 800 people with invincible grace. They they Uh, cloned her. I would show up and it would be, they'd all move. I would destroy the property value of the utopia. (laughs) They'd be scattered. It would be like Mosquito Coast. It would be like, I'm not doing that. We would would wreak havoc. So, and that's the problem with Gnosticism. That's the the, the utopian impulse, which I believe is- Well, that's our next book. We're going to need to do another book with on the next five ideologies of evil, one of them being Gnosticism. Yeah, can you believe how the race to save our century has unfolded before our very eyes? Everything we said would happen, and people said that we were pessimistic, that it was dark. Yeah, uh, we even had an editor arguing that we toned some of the things down, which we should have probably turned up, um, including our warning about anti-Semitism. Uh, I remember there was something in the book where we were talking about the rise of anti-Semitism, and one of the editors had asked us to remove it, and then that week, do you remember this? A Jewish girl in Paris had been slashed across the face on a train. Oh. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember this whole this whole incident, no. And I and I sent it to the gentleman and I said, Yeah, did you see this? Did you see this? Uh-huh. But the point is in twenty thirteen, the Uyghurs hadn't been sent to concentration camps yet. ISIS hadn't marauded its way through the Yazidis, Chaldeans, and Assyrian communities yet. Um There was no war in Eastern Europe. There was no war in Eastern Europe yet. All these things we said were coming. And remember, we published the book on purpose on the anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand exactly 100 years before. Do you want to know what's strange, John, about the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand? My eight-year-old son, who's been telling me since she was four he's going to be a Green Beret and like drills and trains, I wake up to him marching and doing cadences and running and doing push-ups, and he studies books on Russian armor. Wow. He's eight. He's been obsessed with World War I to the point his birthday's coming up, and I just bought him this huge, beautiful coffee table book on World War I. And, oh, cool. And he's talking to me about Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the cause of World War I. He's eight years old. Strange. Do you know there's a movie on, you can watch on Netflix called The Assassination at Sarajevo? You might want to watch it with him. I will. I will do that. It was funny. My, my wife came in and said, do you know that Archduke Franz Ferdinand was – assassinated in Sarajevo. I said, yeah. Well, well, cause Andrew just was talking to me about it <laughs> and he, he sits there and he watches YouTube video after YouTube video. And he's studying the, the war between Japan and Russia. And like, I think it was 1905. Oh, wow. He's, he's moved on from that to world war one. He's become obsessed with world war one. He's an eight wow. year old. Yeah. He's an eight year old. And, <laughs> and I think God's preparing him. I was looking at him today. Um, and I was picturing him as an adult, as a soldier. How sorrowful. You know, my oldest son already fought in Iraq and Syria against ISIS. Here's my eight-year-old who already has it in his mind that he has to be a strong soldier um, to preserve his political community. And the problem I, is our, our government by then will probably be so evil that it would be wrong to serve it in any capacity. I'm not sure it's right to join the military today to serve this regime with this illegitimate president. And this woke military, I, I really, I would not recommend anyone serve the United States government in any capacity whatsoever under its, as it's currently constituted. Well, nor would I right now, so I'm hopeful things will change. And do you know what's sad? I live in Military Town, USA, hill country of Texas outside of San Antonio. 
I joke that you have to have a Ranger tab to live on my block. SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, Marines, uh, Air Force, fighter pilots. These are This is our community of friends in our neighborhood. And when we have gatherings or get-togethers, every member of the community, I'm talking about active duty, field-grade officers, like my family, every male member of my family in my direct line has served in the military in this country or in Britain before we came to this country, as far back as we can look. And But yet, when I'm at these dinner, these parties, these barbecues, these dinner parties, everyone is of the same mind. I do not want my children to join the military. And some of them are joining, and their parents are upset about it. And a lot of it, uh-huh. has, it has to do with two, three, you know, two, and it's really not the wasteful use of our men and, and women in uniform in these stupid wars. It's, uh, it's the gender ideology crap. Yeah. And it's the vaccine. And what's right. interesting to me about that is even me, when my oldest son asked me a couple of years ago, not my oldest, my second oldest, my 16-year-old, he said, Dad, why do you want, why are you encouraging us all to join the armed forces? This was a few years ago when um, you seem to have opposed every war that we've been in since World War II. And I said, well, that's a good question, son. I said, we have an obligation as young men to serve and serve our country, even when they use us poorly. So if by God's grace we s- survive their stupid use of us, that we're in a better position to serve our political community opposing these stupid wars or that we can influence the direction while we're in the military. And we cannot say, you know, when I was an E4 enlisted man, I'm, I wasn't in a position to say where I will serve or where I will not serve. Um but as a veteran, I do think I'm in a better position to speak out against these wars, and I have a better understanding of what it is to be a soldier, to serve in the military. No, that's an interesting thought. And, Never um, would have thought of it that Maybe way. it's not wise, maybe it's imprudent, maybe it's reckless, daring, or, or, or the risk is too much. But I'm willing to send my – I'm willing to encourage my, my, young, my sons, because by God's grace, I would, I would never – I'm not even going to say it, but – yeah, I don't want my daughter serving in the military in any capacity ever. But if my sons, um, you know, want, I would encourage them to, even when, not immoral wars, but if these imprudent wars, right? Like, I think Iraq was not intrinsically immoral. It was it was imprudent um, because it had the likelihood of success um, from where I was sitting. And that's a prudential decision, right? The likelihood of success. Um, was zilch because yeah. we're, we're impatient people and we weren't going to stay there for 100 years. But um, but I'm not willing to send my children where they have to take an intrinsically immoral vaccine and to be to suffer pro- being uh, indoctrinated in bizarre ideologies. Exactly. So, oh, all right, well, John. Well, I hope you have. What else? What do you want to share with us this Thanksgiving? Well, let's listen with this. What are you grateful for this past year? Oh, uh, this past year. I'm trying to think. You're pushing me hard here, Jason. You got to be. Um, we took the house. That's great. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, there are a lot of people who have been really self righteous about the vaccine. And have uh, they, they, some of them have actually said that the unvaccinated ought to die and don't deserve to be treated in hospitals. Um, several of those people died suddenly after getting the vaccine. So um, I know that there's a God and he has a sense of humor. Uh, 
I, I'm, I'm grateful that Steve Bannon's program, War Room, is doing so well and that Marjorie Taylor Greene has established herself as a force to be reckoned with who can't be written off and can't be isolated and destroyed the way Steve King, Congressman Yo, Steve King Yo, now the establishment's was. trying to claim her as their own. Yeah. It's hysterical. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely Yeah, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I learned, uh, I learned how to shoot. I became re- a pretty good marksman with an air 15 with a Beretta pistol. I got, I got a, I got a Beretta because it's the Beretta was the company that made the cannons. The Christians used at Lepanto. I, I said, well, I have to get my handgun from that same company. So, uh, and our book was published ever- by the publishing company that, was founded to keep the ideas of the French Revolution out of Germany, which was great. Really? I, I forgot about that. Herder and Herder. That's why I was so excited. What? Crossroads is the <laughs> division of Herder and Herder. So huh. yeah, I thought that was kind of something. Yeah, that is exciting. Well, I just want to make one more holiday recommendation. Okay. This is something I did in my last column at the stream. A great holiday movie that I think every American kid needs to see and that the parents will enjoy too. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Are you a fan of that? I have don't I've never seen it. Oh my god, you have to watch it with your family. It is about an an inadv- an unfortunate conflict. There's a confusion the people in charge of Halloween, all the the mythical characters who make Halloween fun and scary think that they've been put in charge of Christmas. So they're in charge of picking the presents for little kids and decorating everybody's homes. It's a musical. It's a comedy. It's like the Adams family combined with night with a miracle on 34th street. It's, uh, it's my, one of my favorite movies, period. All right. You should watch it with I, your kids. I, I will I check like that it. out. Now you told me to watch another movie a couple weeks ago. I finally watched it and oh, it blew my mind. Amsterdam. I want everybody to watch Amsterdam, I've been telling pro-life leaders to watch it. And God bless them. This is their response to me. It's $20. I'm like, I will Venmo you $20. I'm telling pro-life leaders, I will Venmo you pro $20. Like, buy oh, they it. don't want to see it because it costs $20? Yeah, God bless them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like, Jason, it's $20. I'm like, buy it. No, I, I don't want to waste $20 on a movie. I'm like, listen, this is a movie that basically... It reveals that uh, the Bush family and Margaret Sanger's plot to make the world look like Jason Jones. That's what the movie's about. God forbid. Could you imagine how horrible that would be? I was <laughs> I was just at CPAC Mexico, and I just couldn't get over how good-looking everybody was. I mean, I've been to CPAC in D.C. a thousand times. Um, Yeah, we don't look like they look. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> CPAC Mexico, they're very good-looking people. But this is what – I mean, is that fair – what Amsterdam is about is Prescott and Mar- Prescott Bush and Margaret Sanger's plan to make the world look like Jason Jones. That's what the movie's about. Well, to to yeah, uh, to, to be specific, the, the film is about it, it's a it's a it's a very loose fictionalization of what of something that really happened in the '30s called the business plot, where very wealthy businessmen wanted to overthrow the U.S. government. They wanted General Smedley Butler, who was super popular hero of World War One. They thought they thought they could use him 
to be a figurehead for a fascist dictatorship in America. And that all really happened. And uh, it, I think the people making the film intended this to be a parable of Donald Trump somehow. And that's why Robert De Niro was willing to do it and play General Smedley Butler. But in fact, in the film, the villains are a secret cabal that call themselves the Committee of the Five. And they run eugenic sterilization clinics all across the country. And one of the black characters, one of the heroes, stumbles into one of those clinics and they try to sterilize him. In other words, they're Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood was then called the American Birth Control League, and it designed the model legislation for forced sterilization of Americans who, who failed culturally biased IQ tests designed for wasps from the Northeast. Um, and six, at least 60,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized or castrated by their local eugenics boards in 13 American states based on the laws Margaret Sanger wrote. And the Nazis, the founder of Planned their Parenthood. eugenics pro what? The founder of Planned Parenthood. Right? I just want to make sure everyone knows. Margaret Sanger is the yeah. founder of Planned Parenthood. Okay, right. And the Germans based their eugenics program on Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood's model. And in fact, they brought Margaret Sanger's right-hand man, Harry Laughlin, they brought him to Germany on a whirlwind tour gave him all sorts of Nazi medals and, and informed him that his eugenics laws, Marcus Sanger's eugenic laws, were the basis for those in Nazi Germany. And also, Margaret Sanger uh, invited prominent Nazi eugenicists to be at conferences that she is hosting and to publish in her journal. And one of her friends and colleagues uh, was a German who had run a concentration camp in Africa, a German concentration camp in Cameroon in like 1910 that murdered and experimented on and saved the skulls of thousands of native black Africans. These are the people at the root of Planned Parenthood. And this is the backstory for Amsterdam, but the people making the movie didn't know it. I'm sure the actors don't know it. It's our job to let the world know Amsterdam is an expose of Planned Parenthood. No, it's and a, a well-made one too. Oh, very well-made one. Beautiful, beautiful film. I mean, the the, the cinematography is breathtaking. The, the writing is, is great. The, is the great. acting is great. And you know what? If Smedley Butler uh, would be General Flynn, you know, right? They're trying to make in Trump real life, in yeah. real life. You know, and and you get that that they just totally miss the point. That yeah, they don't get it. They're the committee of the five. Like, that's that's right. so funny. They, you know, De Niro is part of the Committee of Five, and they, they're, but they're so self-righteous. They don't know. You know, I was talking to a liberal family member of mine about the history of Planned Parenthood and, and how she had Nazi doctors write for her and come to her conferences, and this is what my liberal family member told me. She said that, well, you know, to be fair, Margaret Sanger probably thought they were going to win the war, and so, you know, oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> that that makes it okay, you know. I can't argue with that. Uh, she thought they were going to win the war, and that the future would, you know, uh, would be so bright she'd have to wear shades. But tragically, for Margaret Sanger and her, <laughs> they had to wait right, until then. their Messiah Klaus Schwab arrived to yeah. repackage and represent uh, their their worldview and their ideology. I mean, the did I tell of, you about? 
Sorry. No, go ahead, I have go one ahead. more film. I have one, one more, more film, film I recommended. Have we already talked? I don't know if we've talked about this. The movie Denial with Rachel Weisz. You did, did but I have not watched that? it yet. Yeah. Well, you should not. try to see it. It's a movie about Holocaust revisionists being exposed and dismantled in court. And the, the Oh, yeah, the no, no, I watched this. Yeah, no, I did watch this. Yeah. We did talk about this, I think, like a few shows yeah. ago. Yeah, how the arguments of Holocaust revisionists are every bit as good as those for uh, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And the dismantling of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey by Samuel Leto was a lot like Deborah Lipstadt dismantling Holocaust revisionists. I, I, I thought that when I published that article that it might provoke a lot of controversy, and it didn't. It didn't. It got ignored, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, but yeah, because it, it hit the nail on the head. And there will be no controversy around Amsterdam because it hits the nail on the head. They can't even address it because if to address it is to bring attention to it. That's right. That's right. They're, they're going to. They're going to actively ignore us. You know, no, I've noticed this. Nobody goes after me. Nobody goes after you. They go other after other people on the right all over the place. They don't go after us. We, I think it's because of how tightly we argue the things that we publish. We don't leave logical gaps that they can go after. The only attacks they can make are ad hominem. But we're so sarcastic that uh, we obviously could retaliate in kind, and they really don't want that kind of attention. So nobody attacks us anymore. Have you noticed that? Well, you know, no, no. I was I just spoke at CPAC Mexico. I am really excited to share with the world my my speech, which will be the CPAC Mexico is going to give it to me soon to share on YouTube, and then we're going to print it at the stream on December twelfth well, on the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah, and, and my speech was on how conservatism, unlike ideologies left and right, um, conservatives from different countries, different parts of the world are going to look very different because conservatism is rooted in culture, um, watered by historical experiences. Um, so when you bring conservatives together, like at this conference, there was pe people that like Walesa was there, the next president of Argentina was there, the next president of the Dominican Republic is there, Bolsonaro's son was there, Trump spoke, Bannon spoke. I said, you know, as we come from all over the world, we're going to be like a bouquet of flowers, living flowers, a garden of flowers that's alive, that's unique, that's different, that's beautiful. Whereas if you have a conference of ideologues, they're plastic flowers that they all, they all look the same, but what do we share in common? And how can we say we're united? What are we united around? I said the tilma, um, the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on Juan Diego's tilma is a catechism of conservatism. And what unites us is piety, and a respect for human dignity. And so that was my speech. So I asked the publicist for CPAC, there's, they were just, the president of Mexico has been attacking Eduardo Verastegui and CPAC every single day in press conferences for the past week. And all wow. the speakers have been ambushed and attacked relentlessly. And I said, so what are they saying about my speech? And they said, you know, yours is the only speech they haven't attacked. And I thought, am I that boring? I did get a 10-minute, I got a 10-minute standing ovation, okay? Um, people lined up for an hour and a half to get my autograph after my speech. Am I that boring that they don't attack my speech? They said, no, you're the only speech that was not attacked. So. That's great. Um, yeah, I don't know what that means. It might just mean I'm boring. I don't know.
<laughs> no, no, it means you've learned enough Aikido to where you di- you're dismantling and shaming your opponents in advance. By God's and, grace, uh, I know zero Aikido. I don't know Aikido. You, I want you that are? for the record. I know no Aikido. None. Oh, <laughs> I'm using that metaphor. Okay. <laughs> Uh, All right, listen, have a have a great Thanksgiving dinner, Jason, and enjoy, and uh, uh, have a peaceful time. All right, John Samirak, happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you soon. All right, all right, bye. All right, guys, now let me, first of all, that's good advice. I'm, I'm going to give you my advice. What I do when I'm with relatives, Thanksgiving dinner, they ambush me, and I, I for years, fell into this trap, and I didn't know for like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, probably until I was like 49, I'm 51. I thought it was me. I thought, my wife will say, just don't bring up politics. Don't bring up, why do you always have to start fights at the Thanksgiving dinners? Just please don't bring up politics. And every Thanksgiving, I would go to the party and I would say the mantra, don't bring up politics, don't bring up religion, don't bring up politics, don't bring up religion. And then there would inevitably be somebody leaving the party crying and I'm the villain because of like a three, three words I said, like a, like an arrow in their heart, whatever it would be. I don't even know. Depends on what we're debating. And then I would feel horrible about myself. My wife would say, why do you always have to do that? And then I realized I never do bring up politics. But what happens is people wait all year. Relatives, I know you're listening. I know you're listening, relatives, family, friends, liberals, leftists in my family. I know you're listening. How do I know? Because when you see me, I can tell. You read an article I wrote. You listened to my podcast, whatever. And then they jump on me. They attack me. And then I would make the mistake of responding. Okay, and then, you know, they would end up throwing a tantrum that I would not say, you're right, I'm an idiot, uh, give me a whip, I'll whip myself and apologize. Um, no, I would, I would defend my position with charity and humor, but then they would literally sometimes end up crying, door slamming, and they're leaving. And uh, so now what I do is I, I say, listen, I don't want to talk about politics. No politics, please. It's my job. No religion. It's my job. Um, please, no, no. And um, But usually it doesn't get to that point because I will take a book, bring my reading glasses, find a place, and go sit and read by myself. This is what I do. Or I go outside and I play with the kids. And if I have to go inside, I take a book and I read. Or I find one person, scooch off with them and talk to them. And when people try to corner me, ambush me, drag me into a conversation on politics or religion, I just say, you know, please, um, I don't want to talk about politics or religion. No, 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 thank you. I I do that all day. This is my one day. I don't want to do that. And then they seem very disappointed. But then they even feel triumphant, like Jason's afraid to debate me on religion and politics. Okay. And then there's peace. And really, I just don't want my wife, as we're driving home, to go, do you always have to, you know, start trouble? So I just, that's what I want to avoid. I want to avoid my wife looking at me as I'm already like falling asleep because the L-tryptophan and I just can't wait to get home. And uh, she's like, you know, looking at me 
with that look on her face like you did it again, knucklehead. No. That's I want to avoid that. I want to avoid the line, you know, I want to avoid hearing my wife say, Did you have to do that? Did you have to say that? Do you always have to be that guy? So those are my tactics and techniques. This has been a year I'm gratefully, I'm very thankful. Um, my grandson had a successful surgery, brain surgery, went swimmingly. My daughter got married, and now I'm expecting my third grandchild. Um, the Vulnerable People Project, our list of the original folks that our organization committed to evacuate is almost completely evacuated and resettled. And probably in the next six months, everyone on that list will be evacuated and resettled. At this point now, it's just really about fundraising and um, figuring out some visa situations. Um, our, we have our partner, Ryan Hendrickson, is going to be spending his Thanksgiving with his team in Ukraine, continuing to re- remove landmines for farmers. Uh, the VPP's work in Africa. We're supporting eight Catholic parishes that are, that are suffering severe hunger. That's been a blessing, and um, we're launching through our Olive, through our Olive Grove program of founding organizations to to continue with the missions that we started, so that they get they continue on past the state of emergency. We've launched uh, with Ryan his um, Tip of the Spear Landmine Removal Organization, and Hope for All, the Afghan Relief Initiative. Prince Wafa's organization will be rolling forward. What does that mean for us? We'll be expanding our work in Iraq and Syria and Yemen, also across Africa, working with vulnerable Catholic communities. Afghanistan, by the end of next year, will probably not be really directly involved in Afghanistan other than working with and through the organization we just founded. And it also means I get to make movies this year, in the next 12 months. Very excited about that. Um, Very excited about some movies coming out in theaters next year. I have a lot to be thankful for. I'm thankful for God's grace to know him and know that he loves me. I'm thankful for my beautiful and wonderful family. I'm thank you, I'm thankful to live in a country where I can work um, work for the common good and work for the interests of my community in a way that's peaceful. All these things are great. And um, yeah, so this was our Thanksgiving special. This episode has been brought to you by Mike Lindell's MyPillow, Black Friday, what? You're going to want to go to MyPillow.com and use the code Jones, and you're going to get 50% discounts on all of his great products. It's a Black Friday bonanza over there. So go to MyPillow.com. Do not leave your house on Black Friday. Save, don't, don't do that unless you love crowds and lines and bad, nasty weather. Uh, if that's your thing, traffic, being stuck, you try to turn into these like... Uh, what are they called? These, these um, outlet mall areas. You get stuck. You 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 miss the exit. Now you got to turn back around. Now you're back in line for an hour and a half. Then you get there. There's lunatics fight, fist fighting uh, over some toy. Uh, no, da da da. What you're gonna do is you're gonna stay home. You're gonna go on mypillow.com. You're gonna use the code Jones, and you're gonna get a tremendous discounts on all of the great products for everyone you love. And there's no better gift for anyone than one of Mike Lindell's pillows or sheets or slippers uh, or mattress. If you really love them, you get them the mattress topper. Everything. every There's a bonanza of opportunities of gifts there that come with the excitement of just knowing you got a Mike Lindell product. MyPillow.com. The code is Jones. This episode is also being brought to you by Epoch Times. If you want to stay free, you got to stay informed. 
Go to iReadEpoch.com. This week, we're expecting the verdict on Cardinal Zen. A Communist Party of China is looking at putting Cardinal Zen to prison. We're fighting back to free our bishops. If you want an if you want the best one sheet on the war against the CCP, that's Epoch Times, the first month subscription, just a dollar. But it's so much more than that. So much more than that. It is the most tremendous newspaper in America. I read Epoch.com, code Jason Jones. You get your first month for only a dollar. It's the greatcampaign.org, the Vulnerable People Project, and our great campaign to defend the vulnerable from violence. Uh, starting on Tuesday, I need to raise $300,000 by December 31st to meet our commitments and needs. And it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And what am I doing? What is Jason Jones going to be doing? I just got back from Mexico. I'm going to be heading over to the Middle East in in January. I've got some speeches and uh, meetings in Washington, D.C. in December. But basically every free moment is fundraising. Why? Because uh, we have a lot of work to do. And we have emptied our reserve funds this year uh, to serve the vulnerable communities we serve. It's been rough, and we've had faith in God. But I will tell you what, our back is up against the wall. I put the neck to my own ni- uh, the, the, the knife to my own neck um, because uh, we are going month to month right now to meet our needs because we were so swamped with, uh, you know what, I had to make a choice. Either dump our reserve fund and spend it to evacuate, resettle these Afghans, to get funding out to these Catholic communities that were collapsing into famine in Africa, uh, to support our schools in in Afghanistan that were facing ISIS terror attacks. We were just overwhelmed. And I said, you know what? We're jumping in this this boat with the people we serve. And we need you. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Listen, if you've never donated, I need you to donate now. And uh, the stress is immense. The burden is incredible. But I really do have faith that we're going to meet our obligations. Uh, and we want you to be a part of that. So go to thegreatcampaign.org and join us at the Vulnerable People Project by giving your best one-time gift. Your best one-time gift. We need that right now. We're going to launch our Call for Christmas campaign here next week. And we're going to make sure that the Christians in Afghanistan have food and coal through the winter. The other minorities were also working to serve as many of the widows and orphans of the Afghans who died fighting alongside our men and women in uniform, we want to make sure that their widows and orphans are are served. Can you imagine that? The widows and orphans of the Afghan fighters that died serving the United States are starving to death this winter, and VPP is going to be there for them. To the best of our ability, we want to make sure that all of them are cared for, every single one of them thegreatcampaign.org alright also freeourbishops.com sign our petition uh, we're going to get our bishops out of prison China has disappeared 8 bishops we're getting them out alright until next time happy Thanksgiving it's the Jason Jones Show this has been the Jason Jones Show powered by Mudhouse Media Ooh. Ooh.